0: Here we are uh, with my friend and producer, Ari David, yet again. You seem a little... I don't have friends. (laughs) You seem a little forlorn and a little taken aback, uh, Ari. Uh, You know, you've been very, very sullen ever since you you were informed that Barry Manilow was gay. Uh, Listen, you got to get over this, all right? I just... move on, okay? The world will continue on. But Uh, no one had any clue. It was such a surprise. (laughs) It was... It was shocking. What do you think his mother's going to think? I, You know, it's a good question. Do you think she's heartbroken? <laughs> she's certainly rolling over in her grave. Yeah,
1: because, she, you know, she really, I know you want to start your show here, but I mean, we should take a minute. Is if you think about it, there should be nothing that makes a mother more happy than having a gay son, because it's like having a wonderful daughter. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right.
0: This is crazy. <laughs> was it something I said? You were disappointed. <laughs> What is it? Uh, looks like we made it. <laughs> All right, now we're being silly. All right, so look, we'll talk about something that's truly not silly, and that is the nature of power. All right, and, and what brings this up today is the, the notion of what's been happening with Syria, the, the bombing of uh, the Syrian Air Force very extensively by our President Trump, uh, which we both think is a great move in response to the, chemical, the use of chemical weapons by Assad in Syria. And then, of course, that created friction with Russia. Uh, likewise, there are some big problems in North Korea vis-a-vis our relationship with them. We are now holding their feet to the fire, meaning Kim Jong-un. Uh, and China is very concerned about this as well, and they're amassing their forces along the border with North Korea, um, as, as, which is no surprise. This is what happens in a world between power and non-power, right? Uh, the, the dichotomy between Obama's administration and Trump's administration is now the most apparent it can possibly be. And, and I, I suspect that it'll continue this way for a long time. What do I mean by that? Well, let me backtrack a little bit and imagine, you know, go, go into, uh, in your mind's eye, Go to Grand Central Station in New York, or any big area where a lot of people are milling about. I use Grand Central Station because it's such a classic metaphor. So you see thousands of people all milling about. Now from a perspective of a child who might be operating, you know, walking around, what's his view of everything? Well he sees a bunch of cool lights, he sees a big clock, he sees the numbers of the trains kind of flashing back and forth, and that's all very cool. He's also thinking about toys that he wants to get. That's his vision of the world. This is the way he perceives the world. Uh, Likewise, his father, who may be with him, is uh, thinking about getting home on time, uh, making that phone call that he needs to make or whatever, the the, the kind of frustration that he's had at work. Anything like that. There's a completely different uh, mindset to it. When a a woman might go uh, through the same Grand Central Station, she may be thinking about Uh, Other things that affect her in terms of, um, I don't know, maybe the wife, for example, she may be thinking about clothing. She may be thinking about her promotion one way or the other, or about how to take care of her kids. A completely different mindset. Then you you take it from the standpoint of a, uh, a conservative or a liberal, right? You and I might go there, for example, Ari, and we'll see Grand Central Station, and we perceive it, wow, look at all this hustle bustle, you know, and it's all... Kind of created originally, at least, by private enterprise, and isn't this great that it was made this way? Um, and uh, you know, a, a, a religious person might look at things and say, "Oh, we'll divide the world between believers and non-believers," and a Christian will be between a Christian and a non-Christian. And I know how atheists used to th- used to think, like these are people who are all sucking the resources out of society and such like that. And wouldn't it be better if we didn't have religion and all? Too- Whatever. Everyone's got a different perspective And the same thing now is true Now going back In the way you perceive power And how to deal with conflict From a geopolitical frame of mind Right, so what do I mean by that? I mean like how do we deal with problems That we might have with Canada For one Or present day Japan Or Israel versus how we may deal with problems that we may have with, say, Iran, or North Korea, or Somalia, or Libya, or Russia for that matter. How th- th- we seem to be, we should be dealing with it, and this is where I'm getting at, we deal with them in a different ways, very different ways, as we should. When we talk to, or, or try to negotiate with Canada, it's very friendly, we have diplomats going back and forth and we try to make the trade deal that's best for both parties, but war is not on the table. We don't talk tough. It's not about power, it's about business. It's about making sure that Trudeau, who happens to be the, the Prime Minister of Canada now, and uh, President Trump, who is president for now, that they mutually benefit each other. That's the, that's the mindset that they have. But you wouldn't take that sort of approach, would you, vis-a-vis Iran, but Obama did. Hillary Clinton did. When she came to the Russians and they, she presented the reset button, even though it didn't even say reset, but that's another story, her, her intention was to create a, a button, a red button, and say, listen, we'll press this button and we'll all be hunky-dory. And, of course, the, her equivalent, the Secretary of State for Russia, pressed the button thinking, what an idiot, right? Because they're all about power. Same thing with North Korea, they play this game every single time, Uh, and when we deal with North Korea, I think it was, and Iran are are such a good example of what I'm talking about here. When we deal with those two countries, they, we think that we're dealing with them in terms of, let's, let's figure out what their interests are and we'll meet them. And if we can meet their interests, well then we can get what we want too. But that's the way you would talk to Canada. That's the way you would talk to Japan or England or even France or Israel. But you can't talk that way. You can't deal that way with Iran or North Korea. That's the way it works. As I said in my Sunday show last Sunday, you know, you can, you know, it's, it's like thinking that you can charge your iPhone with the, the charger for your, your Android. It ain't going to work. doesn't happen. Or, or more appropriately, more aptly, it's, you know, you, you have a charger inside your iPhone, but it's not actually plugged to the wall. And you think it is, but it's not. And then you're so very surprised that you're not getting any charge on your iPhone. That's what's happening with Iran. We, we make these deals with Iran, and then we're surprised that it's not, we're not getting what we expect out of it. That's because they, they don't understand The nature of diplomacy. They don't speak the language of diplomacy. They are in a different charger. Their charger is power. You understand that? Then you can get somewhere. And that's why we have, that's why Iran is laughing at us, because they'll do whatever they damn well please when it comes to the the proliferation of nuclear arms or otherwise. Uranium enrichment, you name it. And that's why North Korea is laughing at us, because every time they, they become bellicose, uh, all, they, they know that they will get money back for it. It, it, it is a bribe, or hush money if you want, uh, to avoid, um, to, to avoid um, <coughs> further nuclear proliferation. Bill Clinton did this all the time, right, in the 90s. Every two years or so, they, North Korea would get noisy and threaten nuclear uh, proliferation, and then Bill Clinton would give tons of money. And then the, the cycle would repeat, and they would proclaim as if somehow they've, they've managed to resolve this, this terrible problem. No, they haven't. As I said on my Sunday show, too, name me an instance where a dictator, and Ari, I would love to see a challenge to this. Name me an, inter, uh, an instance where a dictator uh, honored a deal he made with a Western democracy where it no longer suited him that that deal no longer suited him. All right? So, there's only one. Well, you're thinking that Sadat, the... the uh, no. no. What are you thinking of? Gaddafi. Okay.
1: Uh, and, but... But that was different, But there's right? a caveat. Right. He saw it, even though power wasn't being applied on him. he saw that there was a new sheriff in town, in that case George W. Bush, who said to Saddam, give up your WMD or else. Right. And he saw the or else.
0: And he said, I don't want that. I gave up. Yeah. I'll, I'll be a good boy. Now, and, and, but that wasn't even a deal. They didn't. They didn't go to Qaddafi and have here signed. He sign, just
1: volunteered. He
0: just volunteered yeah. on his own. He saw this, this this blitz upon Iraq, and he said, "I don't want to be a, another. You're next to Iraq. I'll be a good boy." It, that proves our point. Yes. Right. He understood the language of power.
1: In other words, your your actual challenge, though, have you ever seen the Democrat Party way of dealing with dictators ever work? Right. By resulting in the dictator being any less bellicose or any, any uh, more submissive than they currently would be without it? No, doesn't happen. It simply happen. doesn't happen.
0: And, and I, I mean, like, like our, our continuing challenge to our listeners, where we ask, you know, name uh, me any liberal policy that has worked, that the conservatives have opposed, name me one. We, we have now a new challenge. Name me any time that a, a, a notion of diplomacy, at least the democratic style, the democratic party style of diplomacy, has ever worked. Because it's all good and well when, it's, when, when a country wants the deal that you are proposing with them. For example, Egypt and Israel, right? And, and America's involved in that deal as well. But the reason why they're following it is because, from Egypt's point of view, it's still beneficial to them to honor the deal. They don't want to have to, to fight Israel. They, they know that's a losing proposition. They have more issues to deal with than Israel. So, of course, they're gonna uh, support the deal with Israel. It benefits them still. But a contract means something only when the person, and, and I say this as a lawyer, a contract means only some, uh, something only when uh, you're willing to enforce it in the breach. When you're willing to understand that you're obligated to it. You can't just say, I don't feel like it anymore.
1: Like when Ukraine was invaded a couple years ago, and they would given up their nuclear weapons about 20 years before, with a contract with America that we would be in in, in their place defense yeah. to defend them no matter what. Yeah, and uh, we weren't. Yeah, and why would any country ever willingly give up its nuclear weapons based on an American piece of paper guarantee ever again? Well, that's, that's ex- how that's exactly vile what, it is. Yeah. what Obama did. Was. Yeah.
0: It undermines all future relationships because it's a, for, it's a form of distrust, right? It's a form of lying when you say, yeah, we'll, we'll honor this deal. And then you say, I, I don't feel like it anymore because, I, because I'm the new president and I want to pull out of Iraq, for example.
1: Yeah, and I want to say one thing about that particular deal, which is just the height of irony. It's one thing if the deal is made by one party and then the other party comes to power. you we say, well, I'm not going to do that. That was that guy's. But the deal with Ukraine was struck by Bill Clinton, and yeah. Obama didn't uphold it. Yeah. So it tells the rest of the world: don't do any deals with America, because no matter how sincere the administration you're dealing with is, going to change anywhere from forty-eight years from now. Yeah. And we never know what we're going to get.
0: Right. Well, look, I mean, same thing with Cuba, for example. What we did with Cuba, what we've done with Iran, uh, Ukraine is a good example. All those things are are examples of how. Well, we don't even, even live up to our own agreements that we have promised, so it, it means nothing. We're, we're acting almost like the dictators themselves, where they say, "I don't feel like uh, committing our resources to Ukraine or to Iraq or otherwise, because it's now no, you know the, my country doesn't like it anymore, so bye-bye, that, that, that's not right, right. We have to honor these things. And likewise, and you know thank, thankfully, in South Korea, we're still honoring our obligations. We, we're still saying, hey, South Korea, we've got your back. As we should. As we should. Um, now, look, uh, I, I worry that it's, it's a part of a whole breakdown of standards. Think about it. Uh, and, and I want to embrace this as an idea that it reveals a much larger picture, Ari. We've talked before about how standards are slowly falling apart over time. We talked about the distinction, for example, between men and women, the the distinction between uh, boys, uh, boys and girls and teacher and student and old and young and good and evil and uh, you name it.
1: Well, over time might not even be true. The gay marriage thing seemed to slip away kind of instantly. Very,
0: very quickly, that's true. Uh, transgenderism, you know, and, and it's not just in the sexual arena, it's just also, also in the moral arena. It's in the... the The notion of uh, of a code of conduct, of manners, and how we how we just call how we refer to each other, sir, ma'am, you know words like this, and things seem to be falling apart. It seems like there's no one particular standard that applies. Um, I mean, if you ask a liberal, a, a typical liberal, ask him what standard, you know, classic standard. Do you still think that it's really important to apply? And I'm not just saying something like, oh, it's important to to observe the speed limit. Of course, you know, he would agree to that. But I'm talking about the ones that we've been talking about. Do you think that it's important to uphold the distinction between men and women? He'll laugh at you. he say, no. Uh, How about teacher and student? No, no, the freedom of speech and all that, they'll say uh, between um, good and evil. He doesn't even know what evil the means.
1: O- the only thing I can think of that they are resolute about upholding are things like um, the con- the commitment uh, that the government made to social security or welfare,
0: oh, or something right. like that. Yeah, but I mean, it's not really a distinction. But I agree with you; they you would know, say that they
1: you, would. You have to pay your taxes. Right. You know, something like that. You yeah, know,
0: yeah. Uh, an an uh, obligation to the government. Right. Yeah, that's right. The, the distinction between well, I don't even I don't even know that it's a standard or a distinction, but I, I I get you.
1: You know, things I, like keep the government running, right. Avoid government shutdowns. You know, right. uh, a good one is what happened last week in California, where they passed that tax raise uh, right. increase on uh, the gasoline tax. Yeah. And the idea was, well, we have to do this for our roads and bridges, right? Right. Ignoring all the other things for roads and bridges that have been committed and paid for over the years and uh, ignoring all the money wasted on this boondoggle or that boondoggle, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's always, it's never a commitment between or to an individual. It's always the commitment to a particular institution, always a big socialist institution. It's not yeah. a commitment to a thing like a, a church or a religious institution. I so get it, yeah,
0: document. yeah. It, but it's interesting, nowhere in the Bible or in traditional uh, ways of thinking has there ever been this sense that you know, it's it's that that you should be aspiring to please the government, right? Uh, you, you don't hear that. You, oh, what
1: a what a great right? line! Uh, That's,
0: you should aspire to please God, of course. Uh, pl- to please your your parents. If to... you have
1: a chance to do a final edit on your book, put that in. Okay. Please, I mean right. that is that is such a brilliant concept.
0: Well, thank you. Maybe I'll I will type it away and and, and put it in. Yeah. It's it's a good idea. I, but it brings, let's, let's bring this now back to what we, we've been talking about, the, di- the distinction between how to handle dictatorships versus how to handle democracies. And, and there is a distinction. And we know that, but the way that Obama and Hillary Clinton and literally all the Democratic Party, the way they respond to evil is so frightening. They, they, they just don't understand that distinction. So they pull back easily out of it. And it's the same thing, right? It's part of the evisceration of the standards. And it started in my mind, I'm sure it's before, but the first thing I can think of as we sit here today is the pullout from Vietnam. Not the pullout of men from Vietnam, the pullout of money from Vietnam and the support of the South Vietnamese Army, the SVA, 1975. When, when, when you see all those pictures of the helicopters uh, on Cy, you know Saigon and, and people you know, clamoring to get into the helicopter, that's 1975, not 1973 when the war, or at least our participation, ended. It's that the Democrats, um, much to the chagrin uh, and at the resistance of Gerald Ford, president at the time, they said, we don't want nothing to do with Vietnam anymore. We're done with this. Never mind the fifty five thousand men who died. Never mind that we want to promote democracy in, in the far east uh, we 're we're just, we're just so tired of it. So no more money, not even not lives lost, no more money. They could have done another the Korea situation, but they chose not to. So here we are, and then very quickly, the, the North Vietnamese were constantly testing the border with the south what was then the South Vietnamese. And they tested it, and they keep on, kept on getting a little bit more land, a little bit more land until all the army trucks and the, the tanks started rolling into South Vietnam.
1: With no resistance. With no
0: resistance. And and that's what you see in, in Hanoi. It's not Hanoi. I'm sorry. Saigon. In, uh, Saigon, yeah.
1: And what you're seeing, just to make it absolutely clear, is you're seeing the Vietnamese people who did not want, living in the South, who did not want to live under the police state of communism, desperately trying to get out. Right. And You know, it brings up two wonderful points about Democrats. Democrats love to spend as much money as possible, except when it's money spent on things like protecting a nation from communism. Right. That's number one. And Democrats love open borders. Right. Unless the people coming into those borders are going to be people like Cubans or Koreans or Vietnamese. Or radical Muslims. No, no, no. Let me finish those people who are going to vote Republican once they have been here for a couple generations. Yes, God
0: forbid, that's right.
1: They're more than happy to have under the uh, the the underclass, the oppressed underclass from Mexico, the uneducated, impoverished masses come across our border. They're more than willing to have any Muslim from around the world come here. But anyone who might, God forbid... Right. Uh, I,
0: get, I get it, I get you it. Know, but the one of the distinctions that we're talking about, the big picture, is the breakdown right, of distinctions... And one of those distinctions is the breakdown of justice. Right? Yes. It's, so, when, when, you know, I'm a lawyer. I go into court all the time. And it's very important, I must tell you, very important to be able to rely on the law. And that if the law, the law says X, and it's a pretty clear picture, it's very unsettling. It's um, very unnerving. When a judge says, I agree with you, the law says X, but I'm going to do not X. Oh, it's the worst feeling. As a lawyer, as a as an attorney that wants to uphold the justice system, it's not right, and you know it's not right. Recently, I had that in one of my cases, and I was really floored by it. And the judge herself said, "I know, i would probably be reversed on appeal in this one, but I just, I, I think I've got to do this. I'm going to set aside this this judgment uh, against your client's interests and such like that." And and we told the judge judge it 's been i mean we, we made it very clear that it, it violates every stretch of law that she could possibly imagine, and she still did it anyway but um, but that 's a breakdown of distinction that was one time it happens very rarely, thankfully, but what we are seeing is a breakdown in the upholding of the rule of law, generally speaking, not by the judicial courts, although you know there's something to be said about the Supreme Court and the gay marriage law and the abortion law. So you, you are seeing a little bit of it, but it's still, the law of the land still prevails. But when it comes to the president, and I'm talking about the Democratic Party presidents, generally speaking, and Hillary Clinton, all that means nothing. So you can see the, the pullback from Vietnam, the pullback from Iraq, uh, the negotiation of the so-called deal with Iran, the way we are dealing now with Israel and how we are undermining our allies and such.
1: Yeah, the terrible uh, rules of engagement they impose right. on our troops left in Afghanistan. Right. What,
0: which, remember, was the good yeah. war? What we have, how we backstab the Kurds, how, how we backstab the Ukrainians, for that matter, just like you mentioned in the beginning of this podcast. All those things you can see as um, violations of contracts or ignoring the contracts, right? It's, it's a breakdown of a very fundamental distinction that Republicans, conservatives, generally speaking— don't believe in, would not do, we, we uh, were very reluctant to undermine a previous agreement. Now the, the most famous time that you can say, well, didn't George Bush, the son, W in other words, didn't he um, abrogate the treaty with the Soviet Union, meaning Russia? Uh, when, once he came to power, and, and he started accelerating nuclear power as well, and it wasn't that in violation of some treaties? Uh, the answer is no, it was not, and he clearly stated it. That treaty, he said, was with a, a country or an empire known as the Soviet Union, which no longer exists. Okay? We're dealing now with Russia and all its, its former republics, we are, and, and they have a different flag. They even consider themselves different. We're not going to honor a deal that we had with a, a communist nation when it's now a completely different nation, supposedly, I mean, still a, an autocratic rule sort of situation over in Russia, but it's not a communist nation. And so, of course, we're dealing with something differently, but they do honor that. And I, I, I hope as we go forward, one of the things that we, we understand that civilization does depend on the honoring of the rule of law, and I don't see that happening with the Democratic Party, because... Uh, they don't understand the foolish nature of how they how they perceive uh, international relations look when you were co- when you were in college you uh, or i went to college as well there was always this major you heard heard of before either policy but more particularly international relations like i thought what does that mean <laughs> right what what's the what's the notion of ir that's the major that they called it that's how they called it the major and I, th- and, I, and I thought either you have an understanding among nations or you don't. The best you could hope for if, is if every country is democratic. Then you have the same system in play. It's a little bit like, you know, all the Samsung and the iPhones and everyone else, you know, getting together and saying, you know what, let's have the same power cord. That way, you know, we don't have to fumble around for different kinds of cords all the time. That would be cool, right? But they don't do that. They don't do that at all. Um, and so international relations, I never understood that. Like, what, what, what are you hoping to achieve? It, it, every country is its own uh, understanding, uh, and you have to deal with them accordingly.
1: Yeah, same with the term international law. I've always yeah. loved, well, what is international <laughs> law? There is no such thing.
0: No such thing. Yeah, I, I, when I <laughs> speak to you, you speak to a lot of young people who are interested in going to law school, and you ask them a question, what do you want to do? Uh, and they, I would say, I don't know, a good 70% of them say, I think I want to go do international law. And I always say the same thing. Gosh, you know, tell me what that looks like when you find it. Uh, by the way, tell me any legal code that shows international law whatsoever. Uh, because th- there ain't no such thing. But in their mind's eye, they think there is such a thing. It's kind of funny. But then again, in their mind's eye, there is such a thing as global warming and that it's man-made global warming, and we're all going to die, and such like that. In their mind's eye, there's uh, this notion that universal health care will help everyone and to the benefit uh, of everyone, far better, far superior than anything that private health care could provide. So I, I suppose, uh, you know, I don't blame them, and it's not a surprise to me that they think this yeah, way. Yeah,
1: well, there used to be a standard where uh, people would go to school, and they wouldn't be indoctrinated. They'd yeah. be taught how to think, not what to think. Yeah. Well, and that's what you're seeing the result of both in the, in the individual uh, example that you just brought up and the, the global example, which is how they deal with uh, international issues from, from the Democrat Party's mindset. It, it's kind of like, um, like they've never seen Back to the Future or experienced... You know, it's funny. I was thinking about this kind of thing as an analogy in that you hear so much about bullying Yeah. But most people don't actually experience real bullying. Yeah. And so they don't have to figure out how to deal with real bullying themselves. Yeah. They deal with hypothetical bullying or things that isn't bullying is called bullying. But very few people, almost none nowadays, actually deal with the back to the future example of bullying, you know, the big Biff Wilson and have to smack him yourself. So
0: was that his last name Wilson in uh, Back to the Future? I think the
1: actor's name yeah. was was Wilson. So maybe oh, okay. I'm being mistaken, But Biff, yeah, you know. So you have this thing where people have this mistaken, almost example that they're so used to having things that aren't bullying called bullying that when they see a real bully, they can't identify it as a bully. Iran, North Korea, Syria. And so they play really nice to it, not wanting to get this potential bully mad. Meanwhile, because Israel or Canada poses no real threat to you, you're abusive to the, towards them.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're abusive to, and, and this plays very nicely what you just said, in, but I want to go into my next topic. But you're right. They are very abusive to the Christians. They're very abusive to Israel. Um, they're abusive to all of our allies for that matter because, well, they know that they won't, you know, engage in, they won't vomit these, uh, this horrific bile upon us such as radical Islam, such as uh, what you might see from um, Assad or from North Korea or otherwise.
1: Yeah, terrorism, violence. Terrorism, Definitely.
0: yeah. yeah. That, that won't happen. Now, But here's the thing that it kind of – it's a slightly different topic on it, and I want to move on to the next segment. But it does relate. Would you have guessed only 10 years ago that we would be in the world that we are today? Right? I mean – you know, it's it's like the classic line of the frog that uh, is in the skillet or the boiling pot, and you slowly turn up the heat, right? And he doesn't move, right? But if if he were to uh, arrive at the at the boiling pot right away, he would he would jump desperately out. jump out yeah. as quickly as possible from the skillet, at least. And, um, and and are we in that you know slowly burning flame? And I think we are. And I and I'll prove it because. Ten years ago, in the year 2007, for example, if you were to say to the average citizen, in the year 2017, here are some of the major issues that will be accepted, uh, and, and among them would be gay marriage. Everyone's—it's it, a constitutional right. It's not even a, a question of states' rights. It's a constitutional right, very different than a than a state-by-state state right. And and then you have this uh, that that. We would go to the single payer system for, or the, the Obamacare system, that people would say that's just not possible. That's the reason why Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton suffered so dramatically in 1994, because they try to push this crazy healthcare law. Um, you, you would, if you were to tell people that we are going to be willy nilly getting out of our conflicts because we don't feel like it anymore, they would say that's not the way America operates. They would also, the whole transgender issue. I mean, that this would even be an issue, which affects one out of 35,000 Americans, or for that matter, worldwide people, uh, you would say that's, that's crazy, that people would boycott people who, who didn't somehow honor the right of a man to go into a woman's bathroom and such like that.
1: Or that we would allow boys, high school boys, who basically have the bodies of adult men, to compete in women's sporting events at the high school level and dominate them Without either um, punishing the boy for cheating, as if it, you would punish anyone else on steroids, or at least make the argument that this is bad for women under any one of the myriad of Title IX regulations, right. it would be
0: an insanity. It, it, of course, uh, and, and there's more. There's more things that that would be crazy, uh, and, and a couple of them came to mind already. But just the way we deal with, you know, the economics of the, the, the notion of wage parity. Um, or that minimum wage would be a constitutional right. At some point, you would say, "Really? Is this what what country are we in anymore?" You would say, "Come on, you're kidding around. That's madness, right?" Uh, and, uh, and and the notion that not only is gay marriage allowed, but if you don't support gay marriage, you're going to be subject to a vicious attack far worse than being even called a racist. Uh, and and furthermore, you you might be forced forced to provide services, the pizza services, the baking services, the floral services, the photography services, or what have you, uh, despite your religious objection. Yeah, right. and who will force you? The government. That's right. And, and the, the government might force uh, a, a Catholic institution such as the Little Sisters or whatever they call themselves to, uh, to pay money that enables abortions. No thank you, right? But you would think, that's not my country. That doesn't that couldn't possibly happen in America. So here we are in 2017, and I ask you the question what will it be like in 2027, 10 years from now? Now, God willing, you know, Trump will kind of steer the, the country back in a normal course, but is it is it inevitable that we're going to be more and more, you know, quote unquote progressive, where more wacky things happen? And if if they are more wacky things, what are they? Um, I fear, and you fear, two things down the pike. One is polygamy, uh, the advancement of an acceptance of Sharia law as uh, an, an acceptable form of governance. Yes, so, in other as words, a I,
1: component of our legal system.
0: Right. A government within a government will be acceptable because it does happen in Europe. It, it really does. And, and it, it
1: started to happen it started here to in happen Texas, here. and now it's on the border of happening in uh, Montana.
0: And then the next uh, area, which, God forbid, it, it's going to grow any further, but this notion of pedophilia being more mainstreamed. Uh, that the younger, as, as they decide that children are more and more sexual, or the more sexual beings, um, and, and combine that with the fact that children are, becoming, are going, uh, entering into puberty earlier and earlier, which means that, and forget about the reasons why that's happening, I have my theories about that but that's not the subject of this podcast. But once they go into puberty, well, I, I can hear someone saying, look, they're, they're sexually ready to rock and roll. So who are you to tell him that he doesn't have the capacity to engage in sex or she? Because they want to. Who are you to tell them? Let, let's say a, a girl you know, be, become, um, enters puberty when she's about 11. You're telling her that she can't you know, uh, go with her feelings uh, so long as it's consensual, of course, uh, for, until she's 18? I don't think so, my friend. And what's about this crazy rule that if, you know, it's okay if they have sex, if she's 15 and, and he's 16, right, one year apart, that's okay. But if the boy is 20 and she's uh, 14, that's somehow a, a bad thing? They'll, they'll, they'll play that argument. You'll start seeing that soon enough. Because and at the same time, they're, they're trying to advocate the, the liberation of sexuality, because that's the, the, all the distinction of, of the notion of this 18 year old uh, as, a, as a distinction, as, uh, as a form of adulthood, at the age of consent and such, that will eviscerate as well.
1: Yeah, and forget the number 18. It's the, What we're, I think, getting at is more the evisceration of the standard of all the distinction between adults and children. Yeah. And that there are certain things that are adult behaviors that children don't do not do. There's certain childlike behaviors that children do that adults do not do. Yeah. And we're seeing it in both directions. For instance, recently polled millennials say they don't feel like they're adults until they reach 30. How many adults engage in childlike irresponsible behaviors?
0: Right. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's a good example. So it's going
1: in both in both directions and neither is acceptable to you and I right. who want to have the resolute uh, uh Conservation of the standard
0: to be in perpetuity. Well, but see, what's happening is when you have this evisceration of marriage, generally speaking, and the notion—I mean, the notion that someone should wait until marriage to have sex—is right out the window. That's gone out so many decades ago, right? I mean, it's so quaint when you hear somebody talking like that today, and I don't—I don't don't mean it in an insulting way. I'm saying that that I'm putting it quaint in quotes, but. Uh, that is, has gone the way of the dodo. So sexuality is more and more experimented on, you know, on an earlier, earlier level. And at some point, people are going to start saying, some, some um, Mambla-type groups, uh, pedophilia-type groups, are going to start saying, uh, advancing the notion that you know, sexuality is for everyone. And if you don't allow Jane, who's 11, for example, to have her fun with somebody who's older, let's say 16 or whatever, or even 19 or 20, well, then you're repressing her. You know, and these are all arbitrary ages. Why, not, why don't we just have it on a case-by-case case basis to see whether or not this man manipulated this girl or vice versa? And, and you and I know, I mean, as we sit here today, it, you know, sexuality is such a, a huge, explosive thing. It's, it's a very important part of, of everyone's lives. And it, it's the one key factor of innocence that once once you're exposed to it, it does rob you of your innocence. And, and it has a mind-blowing effect for the rest of your life and and for society at large. So evisceration after evisceration, you can expect to see that, along with the the, the explosion of different kinds of sexuality. So we're seeing, you know, everyone's talking now about cisgender and other gender things and you know, what where are you on the spectrum in terms of your sexuality and you 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 know you're mostly heterosexual but or cis, cisgender as they'll call it, but you also wanna kind of you're bicurious or whatever it might be. They they do that. But at the same time, there are other levels of, of this, right? I mean it's it's uh it's it's that and it's your readiness and eagerness for sex generally speaking, but also the number of your sexual partners, what kind of partners you're gonna have. It's it's all gonna be a big fray. It's it's like as if they're going to start saying, you know, to, to limit sexuality is like asking a child to limit his toy time. What's the difference? It's all, it all feels good, is what they'll say. Yeah, well... You'll start seeing... Yeah, you, and, you will start seeing that.
1: Yeah, no, what we're... Up against here is we have on one side the progressive movement that looks and and I love the name because when you hear the name progressive movement you just sort of picture a car going down the road making progress as it goes you don't understand this what you just said that's the progress they're trying to make destructive annihilating progress that, that blows all these institutions and standards within society completely apart meanwhile us on the other side uh are completely handicapped in part because. We on the other side. I'm trying to formulate a <laughs> thought that's, that I don't want to get, that I don't want to lose here, which is that um, it's, it's very hard for us to fight the progressive movement because, first of all, the progressive movement, like the Democrat Party, is always completely unified. They're all on one team, all pulling in the exact same direction. We, on the other side, many times are not pulling or pushing in the same direction because, uh, first of all, we're a bunch of individuals, so we have different uh, agendas and ideals to begin with. But second of all, not everyone on our side sees it the way you and I see it, as this uh, complete assault that has to be fought everywhere on every front. And then we're handicapped because... To preserve these standards, many times our side is uh, misappropriated into some sort of prudishness. In other words, we're told, "Oh, you just don't want that because yeah. yeah, misclassified because oh, you're a prude. You just don't like sex." And, no, no, I really like sex. Right. I like sex a lot. I just don't want my kids
0: having until they're ready. We okay? we understand the power of sex. Yeah. That's that's it's 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 nuclear. It's uh, I mean, they—they would. almost everyone understands, well, you know what? I want them to apply the same concern about sex, for young people especially, that they have about nuclear power plants. How about that? Right? They're so worried about radioactivity and explosion and meltdowns and such like that. They seem to understand that. In fact, it's exaggerated. But nevertheless, I want them to apply that standard to the way they think about sex. How about that?
1: Yeah, for children.
0: Right, for children. Because sex is very explosive in its own way. They don't realize that how we've gone from a world, as we said, where people seem to appreciate that uniqueness. I mean, thousands of years we've had this. There was a reason why we had this notion that sex is very different. It it is the one thing that uh, can rob a child of his innocence, but it's also the thing that, uh, if we don't um, understand its sanctity, and how it's part of God. I mean, the, the, a, a devout Christian will tell you, and I, and I love this about my Christian friends, that when a man and woman get ma- married, a man and, and woman, that they're, also, they're getting married to Jesus in their own way. That That's the bond that they create, that they are elevating their relationship with Jesus. Good for them. I th- in Judaism, uh, we, we also say that the marriage between man and woman, and the sexual act uh, is, is such that you are sharing... Your souls with each other. You're you're ascending with God. Yeah, it's
1: a sacred. It's a set sacred pleasure yeah. that you're that's supposed to be. It's not that you um, are not supposed to engage in sex. You're supposed to engage in it the right way within the right confines right. of a relationship, so that this power is protected and and shielded in a way so it remains sacred right. and safe. Right. And, Everything. And and I think, but, I, but I disagree with something you said because I think this is an important point. It's this is not the first generation to uh, to abuse sexual. Um, mores and, and rules and, and morality it's happened over and over in history always with tragic results yeah which is what results in times like the victorian age or the 1950s when people realize whoa daddy we shouldn't have done that let's find a different way right i mean that's the whole re- story of sodom and gomorrah
0: yeah right <laughs> whenever you see a a, a society in decay you can rest assured that a lot of it also involves the uh, loosening of sexual mores. So Sodom and Gomorrah is a great example. And yeah, then, of the course, Roman
1: Empire. the Roman
0: Empire and also what happened at uh, the bottom of Mount Sinai. Right. When the golden calf. The yes. golden calf. I mean, part of that whole process was that people were very licentious and they started, uh, you know, just having sex willy nilly. It all, it's all emblematic of the decay of, of society. Now I want to go back a little bit, because it's not just sex we're talking about, and it's a very important part of it. It's one of our many predictions. But bad things are going to start happening uh, by the year 2027 and, and, and even further. We just have to think about these things. We have to understand that um, we come from a time, if it's from the year 2007, looking at it to today, we'd be very shocked. We'd say this can't be happening, there's no way this would be happening, and these are just some of the things that Ari and I could think of on the fly. I'm sure no doubt our listeners can think of others as well. But And, and by the way, feel free to email us at info at lawcom if you have other ideas that you feel that we would be t- positively shocked if we heard about them in 2007, what we are seeing today. I'm Barack Lurie. Thanks for listening. We'll talk with you next week.